and welcome to Season 2 of the StoryFest podcast. StoryFest is a biennial celebration of the art of storytelling held here on Murramurang Country in the Milton Mollymook, Ulladulla region on the beautiful New South Wales South Coast. The episode you're about to listen to was recorded in June at StoryFest 2021. You can learn more about StoryFest at our website, storyfest.org.au, where you can also subscribe to our newsletter. Every month we feature some terrific book recommendations, author interviews and fabulous book giveaways. As a bonus, subscribers get first dibs on special offers and early bird access to tickets for all of our events. We'd love to see you at future festivals. Before we begin, we'd like to thank the Ulladulla High School Didgeridoo Group for providing the wonderful musical intro to this podcast. Now grab a cuppa or put on your walking shoes and enjoy this episode from StoryFest 2021. Brave New Worlds. Before I introduce our writers, uh, can I just get you all to check that your phones are turned to silence? You're welcome to still take pictures and to quote our witty conversation through social media. The, um, the handle is at StoryFest Inc. And the hashtag for this festival is StoryFest 2021. Hashtag StoryFest 2021. I'm Inga Simpson. I'm a local writer. I live about an hour south of here. Um, in a moment, I'll introduce Kate and Charlotte, but, um, and then we'll have a bit of a conversation. They're going to read from their novels, and there'll be <clears throat> plenty of time for questions at the end. So if you think of something on the way, save it up for the end so that when I open up the floor to questions, I don't get all these blank looks. So, um, Kate Mildenhall's debut novel, Skylarking, was longlisted for the Voss Literary Prize, 2017, and the Indie Book Awards, also in 2017. Uh, with friend and author Catherine Collette, Kate co-hosts the First Time podcast, a podcast about the first time you publish a book. Kate's second novel, The Mother Fault, <laughs> Beautiful cover. It was published uh, in Australia in 2020 and released in the UK last month. Uh, next month. Next month. With a fancy new cover. Okay. Fancy new cover, which we can't show you right <laughs> now. Uh, Kate lives on the outskirts of Melbourne with her family, but right now she's with us. Uh, Charlotte McConaughey is the author of the international bestseller Migrations, insert book, a Time magazine Best Book of the Year and the Amazon.com Best Fiction Book of the Year for 2020. It's being translated into 20 plus languages. Can you advance on that number? 25 now. 25. <laughs> I knew it would have changed. Um, she has a graduate degree in screenwriting and a master's degree in screen arts. Charlotte lives in Sydney. Can you please welcome our guests? <clears throat> Thought we'd start with a reading to get you into the feel of each of the novels, and I think we're going to start with you, Charlotte, and it's from the opening yeah. of Migrations. Yep, I'll just read from chapter one, because it's probably the best way in. Can everyone hear me? I'm not sure if it sounds like it's working. Yep. Um, the animals are dying. Soon we will be alone here. Once, my husband found a colony of storm petrels on the rocky coast of the untamed Atlantic. The night he took me there, I didn't know they were some of the last of their kind. I knew only that they were fierce in their night caves and bold as they dived through moonlit waters. 
We stayed a time with them, and for those few dark hours, we were able to pretend we were the same, as wild and free. Once, when the animals were going, really and truly, and not just in warnings of dark futures, but now, right now, in mass extinctions we could see and feel, I decided to follow a bird over an ocean. Maybe I was hoping it would lead me to where they'd all fled, all those of its kind, all the creatures we thought we'd killed. Maybe I thought I'd discover whatever cruel thing drove me to leave people and places and everything always. Or maybe I was just hoping the bird's final migration would show me a place to belong. Once it was birds who gave birth to a fiercer me. Greenland, nesting season. It's only luck that I'm watching when it happens. Her wing clips the hair-thin wire and the basket closes gently over her. I sit up straighter. She doesn't react at first but she knows somehow that she's no longer free. The world around her has changed just a little or a lot. I approach slowly, reluctant to scare her. Wind screams, biting at my cheeks and nose. There are others of her kind all over the icy rocks and circling the air, but they're quick to avoid me. My boots crunch and I see a ruffle of her feathers, that hesitant first flap, the will I try to break free moment. The nest she's built with her mate is rudimentary, a scattering of grass and twigs wedged into a crevice in the rocks. She doesn't need it anymore. Her fledglings are already diving for their own food, but she returns to it like all mothers unable to let go. I stop breathing as my hand moves to lift the basket. She flaps only once, a sudden burst of defiance before my cold hand closes over her body and ceases her wings movement. I have to be quick now, but I've been practicing and so I am, my fingers swiftly looping the band over her leg shifting it over the joint to, to the upper stretch beneath her feathers. She makes a sound I know too well, one I make in my dreams most nights. I'm sorry, we're nearly there, nearly there. I start to tremble, but keep going, it's too late now. You've touched her, branded her, pressed your human self upon her. Mm. What a hateful thing. The plastic tightens firmly on her leg, keeping the tracker in place. It blinks once to tell me it's working. And just as I'm about to let her go, she turns very still so that I can feel her heartbeat pounding inside my palm. It stops me, that pat, pat, pat. It's so fast and so fragile. Her beak is red like she's dipped it in blood. It turns her strong in my mind. I place her back in the nest and edge away, taking the cage with me. I want her to explode free. I want there to be fury in her wings, and there is. She's glorious as she surges. Feet red to match her beak, a velvet cap of black twin blades of a tail and those wings, the sharpness of their edges, the elegance. I watch her circle the air, trying to understand this new piece of her. The tracker doesn't hinder her. It's as small as my little fingernail and very lightweight, but she doesn't like it. She swoops at me suddenly, giving a shrill cry. I grin, thrilled, and duck to protect my face, but she doesn't swoop again. She returns to her nest and settles over it as though there is still an egg she must protect. For her, the last five minutes never happened. I've been out here on my own for six days. My tent was blown into the sea last night as wind and rain lashed it from around my body. I've been pecked on the skull and hands more than a dozen times by birds who've been named the most protective in the sky. But I have three banded arctic terns to show for my efforts and veins filled with salt. I pause on the crest of the hill to look once more and the wind calms a moment. The ice spreads wide and dazzling, edged by a black and white ocean and a distant gray horizon. Great shards of cerulean ice float languidly by, even now within the heart of summer, and dozens of arctic terns fill the white of sky and earth, the last of them perhaps in the world. 
If I were capable of staying any place, it might be here, but the birds won't stay and neither will I. Beautiful, thank <laughs> you. <laughs> Kate, I'm gonna read something a little different. I am. <laughs> and this is really exciting because I've never read this section out before, <laughs> no. Um, so all you need to know is that um, Mim is my protagonist. She's a mum, she's on the run. And her two kids are Essie, who's 11, and Sam, who's six. Um, and her best mate is in this scene, and her name is Heidi. So, kids, this is the deal. Mim moves over to them while Heidi starts quietly laying out instruments on the bench. Heidi's a vet, I should say. You know the chips in your hand? Essie is wary-eyed. Yeah, she says. Sam looks confused. And you know how you can use them for lots of different things? Yeah, says Essie again. Well. Other people use them too. Yours, I mean. Heidi is angling her body away, but Mim can see the flash of the surgical instruments. She is suddenly filled with doubt. I can't, she says softly. Heidi moves closer. We use the trackers to work out where our little mate here is, right? She says. The kids look at her and nod. Well, they do the same with you. I know this already, Essie says, interrupting. Of course you do, says Heidi, you're smart. So you'll understand that right now, it's important that no one knows where you are. What? Mum, why? Essie's face is panicked. Mim reaches for her, just for a little while. It's important for Dad. It's important for Dad that we can't be found. Why, Mum? I don't get it. Essie is angry. Sam is working himself up, his little face moving between confusion and panic. Because Dad loves you so much, and the most important thing to him is that you are safe, that we are all safe. And the only way we can be safe now is not to be found. Where's Dad? I want him. I want to talk to him. Essie's voice is tumbling over itself. Heidi's face clouds. Mim shushes, soothes. We can't right now, but we are going to find him. We've just got to be a bit secret about it. So can we turn them off? Sam is looking at his hand, running his fingers over his palm. She swallows, takes a deep breath. No, Sam, we can't. Then his little face is crumpling. Then what are we going to do? How can we not get found? I want to turn it off. He holds his hand away towards her, eyes wild. Essie is looking around now, taking in Heidi, the instruments laid out on the table. She's going to cut them out of us. Mum? Sam's voice is so small, his eyes dark and crushed. No. Essie places her palms against each other as if in a gesture of prayer. You can't do that. Hey, hey, Mim soothes, encircling Sam with one arm, kneeling in front of Essie, bringing them both close. It's okay. She can feel them trembling under her hands. Heidi moves quietly around the lab. What about school and unlocking the front door? Everything, how are we gonna do all that? How do we put them back? Please don't be so clever, Mim thinks, not now. We'll sort all that out when we get home, huh? No problems. When are we going home? Where's dad? Mim speaks calmly. Let's get this done and then we can talk about it more. I'll go first, okay? And you can see and then we can decide. They blink at her nod at her smile, her open face, the way she is fooling them, fooling herself, that everything is going to be all right. I'm skipping ahead over, uh, over Mims. Okay, Essie, your turn. Cool, she says and puts her arm up on the table, but Mim can see the set in her jaw. Now, you reckon you might faint, Essie, because I could lie you down, you're not too big, and we could do it on the table. Nah, I can do it just like Mum, she says, and Mim feels a collision in her chest. Keep your hand up, Heidi instructs Mim, and sit here next to Essie just in case. Just in case what? 
Hers went so smoothly, easier than she could have imagined. She wonders why more people don't just take them out. She watches Essie settle on the chair and leaning close to the bench to give Heidi room to work at her hand, the tiny blue biro mark on her skin, the prick of the anaesthetic. This is new territory. Essie fractured her wrist once and they had a panicked visit to emergency after Sam bumped his head on the edge of the coffee table, but it wasn't anything major. She knows she is lucky. They are lucky. She has imagined sickness and injury often enough, imagined it until she has made herself ill. There is a fear at the core of her, right down deep, unutterable, that on bad days she might find pleasure in their hurt. Mim hears her own blood pumping in her ears, a slight milkiness at the edge of her vision, and Heidi makes the cut into Essie's hand. Sam gasps, and Essie looks stricken at the sight of the blade in her flesh. Mim reaches and grips Essie's other shoulder. It's okay, it's okay, she whispers, and nothing refrain that is comforting and meaningless at once. Heidi peers closely at the cut she has made. Can you see it? Mim asks. Heidi grunts. It's in deeper, like I thought. She touches the blade to the wound again. You're doing good, Essie. You feel anything? Nup, says Essie in a small voice that is pretending to be big. It takes longer. Heidi has to dig. It is not warm in the lab, cold really, but Mim watches sweat bead on the skin of Heidi's temple. It is hard to look and impossible not to look at the flap of skin Heidi has cut back on Essie's hand, the vivid red of it, the inside of skin, the messiness of it. She thinks of the soft flesh of not quite ripe mango that clings stubbornly to the underside of the skin when you try and peel it back. Can't pull it out. It's grown over, I need to cut. Heidi says to herself, lips only moving slightly. Essie clears her throat. Can I have some water, Mum? You okay? She peers at her daughter's face, pale now, her pupils fat and dark. She is trying to be so brave, Mim thinks, and wants to cry. Sam's reluctant to bring the water, but Mim is too worried to move away while Heidi digs in her daughter's flesh. No one will do this again, she thinks. I will not let them. She concentrates on her daughter's face, holds the bottle to her lips so she can sip asks her if she would like something special for dessert. She can have anything. What treat will it be? She babbles, flinches when Essie flinches. Can you feel something? Does it hurt? Not hurt, but just, I can feel it. You are so brave. Gotcha, Heidi says. And Essie breaks Mim's gaze to look at her hand. Heidi flicks the tip of the blade and it emerges from the bloodied flesh with a silvered chip. Essie leans in to look and the movement catches Heidi off balance. Her hand moves slightly and the chip flicks off the blade, makes an almost imperceptible clink as it hits the metal bench and bounces away. Shit, says Heidi, biting off the word. Fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> cool. So um, two very different passages, but um, there are horrors in both worlds. This is kind of a turning point in your book, Kate, where everything amps up. But I wonder if you might each say a bit about the worlds that you've created in your books and why you chose to set these stories in the future. Do you want me to go? My world is a very near future Australia. Um, and it's near enough. I've never written spec fic before. My first book was historical fiction. Um, but I knew that what I wanted in this book was for a woman to be on the run. Um, for her to have to uh, leave Australia, which she does in a boat, and for her to have to protect her kids. And to do that, I needed a, um, uh, a world that was very dangerous for her in Australia. So I said it, in my head, it's kind of 10, 10 years in the future, I suppose. It's, um, the, it's climate affected, as, as we are now. Um, for that, I just used straight science. I didn't have to imagine anything. But the government, there's been a change of government. 
uh, and it's just, uh, there's one department in this world and they have got um, ubiquitous surveillance as a, as a method of um, not necessarily tracking the population but making everything easy for everyone. So they, you know, get themselves chipped on Instagram and they um, do it to go to school and to, to get into places. Uh, and of course, surveillance is fine until you um, don't want to be found. So that's the kind of world that I, that I wanted to create. Um, and I suppose the things in it are things that I'm worried about. You know, I, I'm, I'm worried about uh, the movement of, of people and how we look after people who are trying to make themselves and their children safe. I'm worried about a government for lots of reasons um, that we don't pay attention to necessarily, the mm. kinds of decisions that they're making. And um, of course, like, like Charlotte in her book too, I'm, I'm worried about uh, the climate emergency that we find ourselves in. So yeah, that's the world that I made. Thanks, Charlotte. So, so Migrations is the story of an Irish-Australian ornithologist who decides to follow the last, what may be the last block of Arctic terms from the Arctic to the Antarctic. And she does this because the book is set um, kind of a stone's throw into the future, like Kate, very, very soon in the future, um, during the peak of the extinction crisis, uh, when all the animals really are either kind of gone or very close to it. Um, and I, I didn't set out initially to write a book about species loss or climate change, um, but I did want to write about our connection to nature and how nourishing and sustaining that can be. And I just found that as I was trying to do that, I couldn't sort of, I couldn't do one without the other. I couldn't write about nature without also looking at human impact on nature. Um, so that kind of took me into a bit of a uh, research hole, and, you know, a climate change hole. And I, I discovered uh, that over the last 50 years alone, humans have killed over 70% of our wild animals, which is just, it was a staggering number for me to, to learn. And I knew instantly that I needed to kind of push the setting of the novel forward um, into a time when that those figures had reached almost 100. Um, and I think that way I could kind of, I guess, take a la the larger issue of climate change, which is quite a big thing to try and tackle in a novel, um, and I sort of balked at that. Um, so the way that I sort of grappled with it was to si simplify it down into one issue, which was the question of uh, what will it feel like to be here alone? Um, and, and that kind of felt like important terrain to explore um, and something that, you know, would lend itself to a, hopefully a powerful dystopia. Yeah, definitely. And that um, loneliness is a, a big factor, mm. um, sort of singly and collectively in facing climate change, uh, climate catastrophe. Um, can I kind of check in with you both? Like, how are you, given the last 18 months that we've had, and how does it feel to have written a kind of post-apocalyptic kind of book where the future caught up with your book, like, all too quickly, and having that book come out in a disrupted year? I mean, you, your heads must be still a little bit spinning from all of that. It's, yeah, do you feel like you've written it into existence almost <laughs> or something? Yeah, I wish, yeah, wish I hadn't. But, you know, one of the things... Um, the mother fault refers to this bio threat like there's a terrorist <laughs> attack and the 
um, there's a shooting at the MCG during a preliminary final and, um, and a bank hack and then, and then someone steals, uh, there's a, a medical kind of facility in Geelong where they keep, um, they keep uh, diseases <laughs> and someone steals one and lets out this um, you know, bio threat. I did not realise that I was going to release this book during a pandemic. Um, obviously the idea of uh, surveillance and checking in as well became really problematic and I suppose the idea in my book um, the thing that is, I was really passionate about, and I use a, um, a line from a Netflix doco um, to, to open it, which is that uh, we forgot to read the terms and conditions. And, but, but what I was terrified about when the book came out is that I did not want to be seen as a conspiracy theorist. You know, in, in Melbourne, obviously, we, we had really difficult kind of lockdowns over a period of time, and people were really angry with the government. And, um, and I was a little bit worried. I got some messages from people saying, oh, you know, we should use this in our kind of QAnon Facebook group. I was like, oh, my God, don't, don't you know, don't do that. But um, I think the other thing that was really significant, um, there's, there's also, I came out like a lot of you here. Um, I was in East Gippsland during the 2019, 2020 fires and we were evacuated from our camping spot, which is very different from, from losing a house or, or your home. But was really um, you know, impacted by that fire and, and we lost all our stuff there. And, and what I realised in writing it, I think I was in the last kind of copy edit, but um, I had predicted this um, future. I, I refer to fire in the book and I, I had not gone far enough. Like I'd predicted a, a fire affected landscape in 20 years time and, um, and suddenly it wasn't far enough. So I had to go back and, and rewrite that. And, and the other thing that was, was really significant is that the book is about a woman who's trying to um, protect her kids and she puts them in danger to do that. And for the first time, I think, really in my life, both evacuating, um, where I had to get my kids in the car and get them away from a fire, and then those early days of COVID with the lockdowns and things when there was kind of this sense of, should I panic now? Like, at what point, at what point do I go, okay, now is the time that I go out bush with my kids. Um, and I think to have that experience for the first time while I was promoting the book um, gave it an edge, yeah. <laughs> really gave yeah. it an edge. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, I had a, not as dramatic as that, but a slightly similar kind of weird moment when, so I'd finished writing the book and, and in the same way, I'd, you know, I'd kind of written it as 70% of the animals were gone and then kind of realised, well, that's, that's where we're at, actually. Yeah. That's not, um, you know, that's not the future. It's got to be way worse than that, which seemed kind of unimaginable. But I'd finished it, and I, I was in America at the time, and it was right when the bushfires were happening. And it was really surreal to be talking to them about this story about animal loss and saying, you know, I don't think you guys in America are aware right now, but there's billions of animals dying in our forests yeah. back home. It was very, very strange um, and did feel a little bit like, you know, we'd collided with what was happening all yeah. too quickly. And I, I think, I mean, even this pandemic is such a, I mean, we can look at it as the result of our treatment of wild animals in a way. And um, I think it's potentially just a really good time to kind of stop and and think about our impact and you know we've actually seen animals starting to flourish with the absence of human um, presence in their spaces and it's just a really kind of I think profound 
important time to look at, you know, how we're going to move forward from this this point. Absolutely, absolutely. I love um, in your opening, Charlotte, that you read the description, hearing it um, in your voice, of the bird being banded and chipped mm. and then released. And I felt like that was a bit of a metaphor for your character too, sort of both trapped and free mm. um, on, on board a ship at sea. And you have a sea journey in your book too, Kate. Uh, could you talk a bit about writing a woman protagonist into this world and how you wanted them to be and what you had to do to um, write convincingly about having able-bodied women at sea? <laughs> Um, I'm gonna, I'll start with this one. Um, I will start by saying I don't believe that you have to do the things that your characters do <laughs> to get it right on the page, but I do um, get a great deal of energy out of that. So when I knew that I needed to write a book, that I wanted to write a book about a woman who um, escapes Australia on board a yacht, my biggest problem was that I had never been on a yacht. <laughs> so, um, I, and I wanted to have the experience, I, I spent a lot of time on the coast uh, and I'm probably not as scared of the ocean as I should be. And so I wanted to understand what it felt like to be completely surrounded by sea and to be scared. Um, so to do that, as I was Googling one night, you know, how do you get from Darwin to Indo, like what route would you take? I found a yacht race and I sent an email, as one does at 11 o'clock at night when they're Googling, um, to the organiser of the race, and I said, I have absolutely no experience on, on boats, but I am very enthusiastic <laughs> and friendly, and I would love to be a crew member on board one of the yachts going, uh, I'm writing a book, maybe you could get me a gig. And then I didn't hear anything back, and I kind of, you know, forgot about things. Two weeks before the race, I got a phone call from Neville from Darwin, <laughs> And Neville said, you still interested in coming on a yacht? And I said, yes, I am. And I uh, had to hot bunk. He needed a woman. Basically, it's the only reason I got the gig. He, I had to hot bunk with um, the only other woman on board this yacht, um, which means that we shared the same bed, but we were on different shifts. Um, and uh, there were six other blokes on the yacht, and it was leaving in a week and a half, and could I get to Darwin? So I did. And my husband said, um, if you feel weird, just come home. That was his kind of the extent of his advice. <laughs> so, um, so I jumped on board this yacht from Darwin to Ambon in Indonesia, and it was the most exhilarating, uh, thrilling kind of experience. I had a was very lucky to have a um, mentorship at the time with the writer Charlotte Wood, and she told me before I went, um, you know, be safe, and also just take take so many photographs. Take photographs of the sink and the edges of things and um, take photographs of the sky and, and just note how you feel all the time. So I did that and um, I thought I was gonna die one night. I wrote in my notes, um, this is so foolish. Why am I doing this? Um, my kids will say, yeah, mum was doing research for a stupid book. <laughs> um, and, and, I, and I came upstairs one night, I was on the midnight till 6 a.m. shift and I came up um, out of bed and I was mostly in charge of making coffee, that's about it, and asking questions, um, getting stories. And, I, and we were kind of on an angle. I don't know if there's any yachties in here, but you know, it was an angle that didn't feel very good to me. And I was kind of up against the, um, the wall. And I said, Neville, what happens if we go over? Like, if we go upside down? And he said, oh, we don't think about that. And I said, yeah, I know, but 
what if we do? <laughs> How do you get out? And he said, you, you don't get out. And I was like, <laughs> shit, what have I done? But the, um, I could go on, so I, I won't go on, but the, the most extraordinary thing too was when we got to Ambon, um, we had about three days there and it, and it was extraordinary. But, uh, you know, the journey for Mim is about um, remembering who she was before. And what I wanted to write about was a woman uh, who's a mum and a wife and who's lot, you know, hasn't been able to work in her field. She's a geologist because she's been looking after kids. How she uh, remembers her former self and accepts that like strata in, in you know, rocks that all those selves make up who she was. And when I got to Indo, it was the first time for many, many years that I hadn't had to decide, you know, by consensus with my kids and whoever else I was traveling with, you know, what corner to turn at. Like I was on my own in a foreign country and I felt um, alive again and I felt um, really strong again. So um, that was part of the energy that I got from that trip yeah, as well. Yeah, and it's definitely in there. I mean, she too is both trapped and but, but there's an opening up yeah. as a result of getting rid of that trip and going to sea. Yeah. Yeah, Charlotte. Great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did not have any experiences like that. Um, I didn't jump onto a deep sea fishing vessel. Um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> you, well, A, because you're not allowed to, it's incredibly yes. dangerous. But also I get horribly seasick. So <laughs> I was never going to kind of go off on a big adventure. And I'm, it's just probably, I'm not brave enough for that. <laughs> so my, most of my research was a lot of reading, talking, you know, trying to get first-hand accounts. Um, I had uh, this really great story from my granddad who kind of told me about uh, sailing in the, in the Drake Passage outside Antarctica and how, you know, they were in this terrible storm and so he was explaining to me how ships move in a storm and it's not how you would imagine, it's up and down. So your head's kind of hitting the, the roof and then you're slamming back down and and, and being told by the captain, you've got to take your shoes off in case we have to swim, which was just terrifying. Um, so that's kind of, I guess, how I sort of tried to just immerse myself in that world and, and, and have Franny come alive on the boat. Uh, to be honest, the, the research was a bit overwhelming and there was definitely a point where I felt like, I have to stop now. I, I, this is just, I'm getting further and further away from the fact that I'm just writing a fiction novel and <laughs> I just need to actually plunge in and start writing it and kind of write around what I don't know. Um, but as it, it's interesting, yeah, I mean, all those details are the hardest thing. Mm. You know, you're kind of spending time trawling the internet for layouts of boats and, wh and what things are made of and how they look under the, under the deck. And, but I, I did find myself feeling... Um, as, as you kind of mentioned, Inga, Franny has a bit of, you know, she's free and very bound at the same time. And I, I, I even felt myself quite trapped on this boat as, as you know, 90% of her present day story is set on this boat. And, and I was used to telling stories. A lot of my work from before this was kind of big sprawling fantasy series full of characters. And suddenly I found myself with this one, one protagonist inside her head trapped on a boat um, and she was kind of really wanting out and I was really wanting <laughs> out. Um, so most I think of the crew are men, of course. Yes, as well. exactly, yeah. yeah, which I think would have been really uh, confronting. And um, so I kind of got, a got around that by trying to make the crew as sort of 
fun and interesting as I could to give her kind of moments of laughter and joy, but also by um, choosing a non-linear structure and uh, dual timelines. So anytime I felt like I was too stuck on this boat, I would shift into Franny's kind of past timeline um, and explore her life before the boat and what had led her to that and the love story between her husband. And, and I found that that really helped open her up and, and let me kind of explore her in a different way and have a bit more fun with her character. And you're kind of touching on this, because both of you, there's, um, there are positive aspects for the character and um, very enjoyable parts of the journey, but um, the bigger picture is pretty grim. Mm. So was that something you struggled with in writing the book, how to, particularly in the context that we're living in now, ha how to balance um, fear and apprehension and s screaming stop with hope and, you know, a satisfying story for the reader? Like, was that part of your process? And, and when did you do that checking in with yourself about getting the balance right? Yeah, it was definitely challenging. Um, this is quite a heavy book, I guess, in a lot of ways. It's, it deals with um, pain on a large scale, loss on a large scale, personal loss, grief. Um, and therefore, I kind of knew that I needed Franny, the protagonist, to be able to access a lot of joy and love. There's a lot of love in these pages as well. Um, and I did that, I, I, it was, I felt myself you know, going down really dark paths and getting stuck and feeling like I kind of couldn't keep writing and had to give up. But my way out of that was always to remember for myself and for Franny um, all the little moments of pleasure and joy um, and tenderness that we kind of experience every day. And for Franny, it's finding joy in taking a plunge into an icy ocean um, or remembering the animals that she loves so much, um, reading, walking, you know, she's, she's got really simple pleasures. Um, and that way, you know, I, I, was, I always knew that I wanted to write towards hope because otherwise I think it's, it's just too depressing. It's, mm. it's too dark. I, I wouldn't find it much point in that. So I wanted her journey to kind of be from despair and apathy, um, you know, feeling like she couldn't face the enormity of this issue uh, to reconnection and um, redemption, rediscovering kind of her passion um, and, f and the fight, being able to take up the fight for the things that we haven't yet lost. Mm. Mm. Well, and finding pleasure in the everyday and um, taking the time to think about mm. what you can do is probably something nearly everyone has, has experienced in the last eight yeah. months as well. Mm. What about you, Kate? One of the um, one of the joys, I suppose, in in writing this was the kids, and you know, Essie and Sam, Mim has to look after them, so they're on every page, which which was kind of difficult to write. But um, there was a lot of joy in in them because kids are um, as annoying as they sometimes are, are also delights. The things that they say are delightful. Um, they bring that kind of hope as well, and it very much is. Um, a friend read this for me really early on, and she said, "Kate, you realise that you've written." Um, a love story between Mim and Essie, don't you? <laughs> like, you know, between her and her daughter. Um, so that was a real joy to write. The other thing, and, and talking about being on the boat too, um, because 
you know, because I enjoy it. I had to put a little kind of hot romance in um, on the boat, which uh, was fun to write, obviously, um, with an with an ex-boyfriend um, for Mim, but also because she was stuck on the boat and you can't actually do anything. Like a boat takes as long as it takes to get to the place. Uh, there's no, you know, they're not being surveilled at that time. She can't find her husband. She can't do anything um, other than, you know, sail the boat and kind of have this hot romance. Um, and so that, that did give it kind of um, some light, it gave it something, the readers tell me they enjoy it. Um, but it was, it was important to write that in as well. It was really important to write that in. Well, the kids are great characters. They're so resilient, as it turns out. Oh. Um, she needn't have worried about them, they're tough. <laughs> so that, that's quite hopeful too, like you know, the next generation inheriting these worlds yeah. that we're making, you know, real and fictional. Um, yeah, I love those kids. Yeah. Um, and just again checking in with you both, like your own writing the books and then publicising them and then the couple of years we've had, um, how do you manage your own levels of optimism and um, <laughs> activism and despair and joy? You know, one of the things that I've found really interesting, I had a lot of Google alerts um, going while I was writing this book um, on mining. You know, part of it is about the mining industry and in particular what happens in places like Indonesia, um, what happens to activists and journalists in those places who uh, often, you know, risk their lives and, and sometimes lose their lives. One of the, um, I've got a journalist in there and one of the places that I was researching um, is a website where um, environmental journalists, particularly um, in places like Asia and Africa, upload their stories as they're writing them in case they die uh, so that um, someone else will publish them. So, you know, I, I was kind of looking at that stuff. I was looking at um, re-education camps in Xinjiang province and the kind of um, crazy surveillance um, that happens there and the persecution of the Uyghur people. Um, I was looking at the kinds of decisions that our government makes on our behalf and in our name, both about things like refugee policy um, and the way that we treat asylum seekers as well as our environmental policies. And I suppose um, my anger <laughs> and fury at all of that um, continues. And, and, and what the joy, and I suppose you would find it the same, Charlotte, of writing a book like, like this is that you get to continue to have those conversations mm. um, with, with people and, and also that uh, you know, this came out as quite a commercial kind of um, book, commercial fiction, um, which means that potentially some people who might not have engaged with these kinds of ideas before are engaging with them for the first time as well, which, which is a lot of responsibility sometimes as a writer, but it also means you get to have those conversations, which I think is yeah. really good. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I think for me, this, this book kind of came from a place of, I suppose in a way, sadness, um, and loneliness and now that it's kind of over and I've sort of moved on to my next project I've realized that the next book has really come from a place of rage mm. um, I, it just feels like everywhere we look you know there's there's something terrible that we are causing um, and so I think yeah, my, my work is definitely my way that I engage with that and try to... Uh, I think we all wonder how we can make a difference and I think with artists, artists 
you know, make commentary, writers write books, this is what I can do. Um, it's probably one of the main things that I can do. We all need to find kind of the space for, for ourselves to, to be active. Um, you know, the, I think the scientists are going to be the ones that save us, the conservationists and their work, and there's a lot of hope to take from them, but they can't do it alone. They need us. Um, fiction and the arts has the capacity to have incredible power. Um, and I don't think we should, you know, underestimate that because it, I think it makes uh, what's hard to access sometimes via politics or science, uh, it, it makes the issue emotional. It, it helps people to feel it, to really feel it deep, deep in, in our bones. And, and that's, you know, that's how we kind of start to acknowledge that this is an incredibly emotional space. It's a space full of grief and loss. And we need to be able to feel that before we can kind of start looking at ways to solve the problem. Um, so yeah, as you say, Kate, there's a lot of responsibility, I suppose, when you think about it that way. But um, it's sort of the only way that I know how to engage with it mm. or, or deal with my own kind of anger and, and, and grief. Yeah, same. Yeah. Yeah. Let's hear about that new book. <laughs> Once There Were Wolves is coming out in August. Yes. Tell us about it. Yeah. I want to hear about this angry book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of fun writing a character that was a female character filled with rage. <laughs> uh, she is a, a wolf biologist who is charged with reintroducing wolves back into a Scottish um, highlands in order to rewild the forest there. Um, she gets a lot of pushback from the locals who understandably are frightened of what the wolves will do to their um, agricultural industry and the safety of their children. Um, it's, a, it's a love story, it's a crime story, um, it's a story about the healing power of nature and, and ultimately I think it's about rewilding not just landscapes but ourselves as well. Nice pitch. But <laughs> I see that you've just sent in a new manuscript. You've just I have. Send. I've just pressed send on a new manuscript, so mine's not out till next year. Fingers crossed that you know they they accept it. But because I uh, don't like um, being put in a box for the kind of book that I <laughs> that I will write, I've gone back to historical fiction for my new one. I'm deeply obsessed with it at the moment. <laughs> um, it's set in a meatworks in. Footscray on the outskirts of uh, a real meatworks in 1933 uh, during uh, the slaughterman's, a slaughterman's strike as they tried to bring in the chain system, which is the um, new, uh, you know, it was a new way, came from Chicago, of, of operating um, an abattoir. So it, it's a love story. It's about women, really, who work in this, this meatworks. It has been so much fun to research. I have become deeply <laughs> obsessed with all things meatworks and slaughter, and it's kind of a very odd thing. Um, yeah, it's kind of my, I'm, I'm pitching it as a little bit like Peaky Blinders, in Footscray. <laughs> um, were you happier going back to the past? Did that feel like a safer place to go? Well, you know, I, I, I mentioned this yesterday and then someone actually, I don't know if they're in the audience, someone came up and said to me, um, commented on this, so I rewrote the ending of The Motherfold about yeah. 17 times. Like the la I'm talking kind of the last chapter. Um, and the person who came up to me yesterday said, that's interesting because my husband, I li really liked it, my husband didn't. So I'm going to tell him that there's 17 <laughs> other options for the ending. Um, but 
what I found really difficult was like the scope. You can do whatever you want when you're making up a story set in the future, whereas historical mm. fiction, particularly what I did with Skylarking and this new one as well, it's, you know, it's based on a real place, real events over a time. So you've got that skeleton of the story already there, which um, has been really helpful. And the only problem has been falling down the kind of hole of yeah. too much research. research. Yeah. And what about yours, Charlotte? Is it now or a little bit in the future? I guess it's now uh, with a slightly speculative idea. Okay. <laughs> cool. Because in, in a sense that, um, it, you know, it's a pretty active debate going on in the UK at the moment about whether or not to reintroduce wolves yeah. because it would actually rewild the country in a way that nothing else would or not much else would. It would be yeah. incredibly beneficial but so they bring back the apex predator. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. they're an essential part of a biodiverse environment. Um, we need the predators uh, or else everything else kind of starts to die off and that's what's happened there and um, and all over the world. Uh, so we need to do lots more rewilding and, and there's a, a big debate in the UK at the moment about whether or not to do it with wolves. And so I kind of just thought, okay, well, what would that look like if they did do it? It's unlikely that they will. Um, but yeah, present day setting just with a crazy idea. <laughs> I'm not that crazy. No. I, I look forward to talking with you about rewilding because I yeah. think it's such a great turn, you know. Um, it's a scientific term, but I think it's also a creative term. And I think both of your books uh, are rewilding the landscape. Mm. Um, oh, yeah. that's a lovely way to look at mm. it. Beautiful books. Restoring the world, rewilding the landscape. Guess what? It's time for you to ask all your interesting questions. <laughs> there is a mic, and we, um, we will detox it between people. <laughs> Brave new world. <laughs> after we remove your chips. Um, <laughs> hands up for a question. Oh, thank you. So. <laughs> yeah, I, well, I think Essentially, a lot of the a lot of the problems in terms of um, well, I guess we can trace climate change or um, a lot of our environmental issues back to maybe when we started to separate ourselves from the natural world. Um, so a long time ago, um, but I think that separation has been a, a huge detriment to the to everything to us. Uh, as a species and to or everything that we share this planet with. Um, and I think that the idea of rewilding ourselves is simply about reconnecting with what makes us wild in a way, and I don't mean wild as in violent or uncivilized, I mean wild as in uh, free and just incredibly kind of connected in with the natural spaces around us instead of separate from them. Um, I think that separation is, is why we do so much damage to, to our, our wild spaces and creatures. Um, so I really love the idea of uh, rewilding a self 
as as a healing process. Mm. Um, and and in in the new book, you know, she's it's part of healing from trauma. This this reconnecting back in with nature and and with creatures and. Um, I think the gentle parts of her as well. Mm. Yeah. Great question. Someone else. Oh, so quiet on a Sunday morning. <laughs> yes, there are, and thank you so much for the question. Um, so, for a long time, this book was called Borderless. I keep a journal um, of my writing process. So, the one for this book is about 150,000 words. I partly keep it because when I was um, promoting Skylarking, I, I got really frustrated and kind of stressed that I couldn't remember exactly the way, the process of writing it. So I determined that from now on I will keep a journal of the process. And so there's this one day, so I can trace exactly the day I came up with the title, where I was just playing with ideas. I was reading a lot of geology um, kind of stuff. And I was playing with this idea of fault lines um, and, and it's got like these, you know, a, a bunch of titles and then the mother fault. And I called my mum immediately, who's often my first reader, and I was like, mum, got it, I'm gonna call it the mother fault. And she said, no, you cannot do that. <laughs> and I was like, what? Why? And she said, it's always the mother's fault, Kate. Like, it's constantly, why would you do that? And I was like, yeah, I know, Mum. can kind of play on it. But she, she had such um, a reaction to it, immediate reaction to it, that I also knew it was quite provocative. And um, a lot of book, um, booksellers have said that too, that, that particularly women will come in and see it and kind of um, say, oh, or um, <laughs> yeah. isn't that true? And, and things yeah. like that, which, is, which has been fun. But um, it's not actually a technical geological term in terms of the mother fault. But you know, one of the ideas that I explore in the book, one of the ridiculous things I, I researched is that there was for a time an idea that um, we should put uh, toxic waste and nuclear waste um, they should uh, send it into the fault lines, um, like around the ring of fire, and that would be a really good place to store it. Right. Yeah, <laughs> uh, so that was one of the ideas. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's difficult and it does, I think, well, I guess as writers we have a natural inclination, inclination to find those spaces and I don't know what that says about us. No, no. Um, <laughs> I feel most fulfilled as a writer when I'm going deep and dark uh, and confronting those fears um, and finding a way to be as truthful about them as possible. Um, but that is the challenge, you know, that's the, that's the scary space as well. And I th but I think it's surviving that 
and finding a way out of it, which is, I guess, the story, the journey that you want your readers and your character to go on, that's where we, we feel that emotional catharsis. It's the survival of those dark spaces and making our way out of them to, to joy and light. Um, you know, that's the joy of writing, I think, for me. I was exactly going to use that word catharsis and I think that you know that with the rage and the fear and all those things to put it down on the page um, feels like an an act you know it feels like that that you're doing something so I I find the act of writing it out um, therapeutic I suppose and then I also go and cuddle my kids yeah or drink a bottle of wine wine. yeah Thank you so much. Yeah, I did. Um, I mean, I knew... I guess I sort of write a, uh, a bit of a combo of what do they call it, pantsing versus um, (laughs) planning. (laughs) So there's a bit of a combination there for me. I like to sort of uh, know where I'm going, have a sense of the arc of how to get there, know, uh, I guess, what I want my character to start with and what I want her to become at the end, and then I'll let her kind of guide me through, I I guess, the whole middle section. but absolutely, you know, as, as we've kind of said, it, it takes you to some, some dark spaces and I, I knew that it was very important for me to end in a place of hope and uh, forgiveness and um, re- just love, really. Um, that's, and, I, and, and that was such a joy for me to get to that ending as well, to be able to, yeah... Uh, the ending's always the most wonderful part to write, I think, <laughs> of any book. <laughs> well, and also because you've done your job. We've <laughs> 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 got time for another one. Yeah. 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 Come on. Well, I'll ask one then. Um, you know, we've been talking about mm, the positive, finding the positive aspects and the rewarding aspects of, of the writing and um, of the stories themselves. What about... Um, what sort of responses have you been getting? And some of that, I imagine you didn't get the sort of promo tours and festival circuits mm. you would have expected. So how have people engaged with you, your readers, and how have your books found readers? Mm. I think the, m- the most amazing thing has been getting to come and meet real life people in festivals. <laughs> um, I think I said to someone, my first festival was Adelaide Writers Week, and I nearly jumped on the people in the first <laughs> row and kind of like, poured at them. So that um, was in March? That was in March, yeah. yeah. But So the book came out in September. I was in deep lockdown, um, couldn't leave the house at that oh stage in God. Melbourne. So my launch was on um, Zoom. Like <laughs> 250 people came or something. It was <laughs> crazy. And my friends, um, because they couldn't be with me, like had balloons sent and flowers. Like it was really <laughs> crazy. But um, I think, you know, the joy of writing a book is always when readers start to connect with it. And I've had... Um, people cry. I've had um, people get really cross with me yeah. about the ending um, and about what Mim does. Um, I've had a group of um, women in a book club 
just um, tell me, who were all Greek women, um, that they were so impressed that I'd written like the hunk, um, the ex-boyfriend as a Greek man. And I was like, I, was he? I don't think I did that, but the joy is that the reader is always right, of course. So, you know, that's, that's the joy of, of talking with readers too. Yeah. Oh, totally. It's such a pleasure to hear from people who've read the book. That's the sort of the whole point of why you do it, isn't it? Yeah. Um, it has been very strange releasing into a pandemic and doing doing the promotion stuff is really hard on Zoom because you don't. It's not this. You no. don't. You're not talking to people. You're talking to a screen, um, and you're not getting any kind of feedback or response. Um, so it is hard to kind of, I guess, <laughs> know what the, what the impact of it is. Um, so yeah, this is this is really really such a pleasure. <laughs> well, both Kate and Charlotte are going to be downstairs in a moment signing books, so you can continue that face-to-face -face communication. We won't really pour you. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Um, Kate will be very well behaved and stay behind the desk. Yeah. But um, you can ask any questions that you prefer not to ask in front of an audience, of course, too, while you're having a book signed or buying a book to give someone else if you really loved it. So. Um, can you please join me in thanking Kate and Charles? Thank you. Thank you, Inga. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Come and find us on our website at storyfest.org.au or follow us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter at Storyfest Inc. And that's Inc. with a C. We'd like to give a huge thank you to Kel Butler from Listen Up Podcasting for her recording and production expertise on this podcast. <laughs>